My name is Dustin Kluwer, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to the West. The Spaghetti West. <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm just I'm just chuckling at that intro. Uh, normally, I would interject here with some continuation of that thought. And, and you know what? I still can. That's right. We're talking about Spaghetti Westerns. The wave of... Uh, Italian-produced Western films that lasted from approximately 1964 with the emergence of Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars, starring Clint Eastwood, all the way deep, deep into the 1970s. But, you know, the golden period was the 60s. Pretty much when the 70s arrived, the Spaghetti Westerns, while there were still some that were being made, they were not as popular, even close, as they were in the late 60s when people were riding that Leone train. And, you know, if people think there's a lot of super Hero movies. Oh man, there are hundreds, thousands of spaghetti westerns that were cranked out by Italy and Spain, just swarming the screens. An amount that is honestly unbelievable. That, like, sometimes uh, I'll run into a new spaghetti western that's great that I've never heard of, and I'm like, how is this possible? Now, when we say spaghetti western, I think most people, even just your ordinary Jane and Joe popcorn on the street understand what we mean. Uh, we're thinking Clint Eastwood wearing that hat. We're thinking... In your Morricone score. Basically, those are the things that we're thinking of. And in fact, I think like in the popular consciousness, in a, like in a way, spaghetti westerns are probably just as prominent and maybe even more so than traditional Hollywood Westerns at this point, right? Oh, absolutely. I think that most of the people who have an affection for traditional non-classic Hollywood Westerns, like the John Fords or the Howard Hawks, are people that like grew up around that era when they were in syndication on television. That I think that Clint Eastwood and Leone's version of it is the predominant version that people think of when they think of Western in general. I mean, I can tell you that seeing The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly in high school was probably like my gateway into the Western genre. I didn't get the Western genre before that really didn't really have any affinity for it. And I'm sure a lot of people feel that way. A lot of people get into it through Leone. I'm the same way. And I think it's because that as kids, kind of Western media, the only way that we would see it is through parodies. Like, yeah. we'd see Western parodies endlessly on cartoons, especially Looney Tunes cartoons. But as far as, like, straight ahead, take this seriously entertainment, like, we ain't watching any serials. Like, none of the stuff in syndication has, like... We're not watching Hop Along Cassidy. And we didn't grow up in the era of Gunsmoke or Rawhide. Like, all that stuff was way behind us when uh, people our age started consuming media. So Spaghetti Westerns and the stylized way of them is an entryway into just westerns in general i feel now as you mentioned there are hundreds of these movies and that's why we wanted to talk about them this week we've long time ago did an episode on the number two director of spaghetti westerns sergio corbucci who directed django and the great silence we've not yet done an episode on sergio leone but there's a vast universe out there and i mean when you look at the lists of the top 10 spaghetti westerns leone and corbucci are the ones who really dominate yeah they take up like eight tenths of the list most of the time there's a lot of other gold in them are hills and so when you pitched doing an episode on just spaghetti westerns in general i was surprised that you didn't have that much experience with them that like beyond leone and corbucci it's not something that you went like looking for in the same way that you would go looking for martial arts cinema yeah i wonder about that i mean i've certainly seen a fair amount of spaghetti westerns over the years i mean leone and corbucci just so dominate 
the perception of the spaghetti western i'd seen some of the deeper cuts like django kill and uh, django prepare a coffin and django this django that like lots i've seen a lot of movies with django in the title i've seen a lot of movies with like klaus kinski wearing a cowboy hat out riding a horse somewhere but i didn't have a great sense of like who the other auteurs beyond the Sergios. Um, and we're going to get to that. I'll just give a little bit of background for why the spaghetti Western genre arose and what exactly it was in America. By the 1960s, the Western was kind of on its way out. In the 50s, the genre had largely migrated to TV with Bonanza and Gunsmoke, etc. The spaghetti westerns with a fistful of dollars were really building upon the more melancholy and jaundiced view of the West that was seen in some of the later John Ford, John Wayne movies, movies like The Searchers, as well as... I know a very influential one was the Marlon Brando film One-Eyed Jacks. And I should point out as well that like Spain and Italy were slowly getting into Westerns before A Fistful of Dollars came out. The difference is that they were more inspired by, you know, like the Roy Rogers type of Westerns, that there wasn't that kind of darkness in them that I think defines spaghetti Westerns as a genre other than the comedy ones. And it's what people really like about them as well. The spaghetti Westerns are a great case of kind of cultural cross-pollination because in addition to John Ford, they were heavily influenced by the samurai movies being made in Japan, particularly Kurosawa's film Yojimbo, which was the template for A Fistful of Dollars, as well as countless other spaghetti westerns. In fact, Yojimbo is still being ripped off to this day. And spaghetti westerns, I think, they were really popular as well with filmmakers because they could interject the emotional current in the mid-60s when all these films were coming out. Like, I was very surprised to find that uh, Confederate soldiers are often the stars of spaghetti westerns. And I was like, why is that? And I saw one essayist say that it's because it reflected kind of Italy's uh, mass consciousness of being involved in World War II, that they were on the wrong side of it at first. When you think of what was the appeal of the spaghetti westerns when they were being exported, it can be like defined in one word, which is violence. These movies took violence to an extreme that was never seen in the more genteel Roy Rogers or on the higher end of the spectrum, John Wayne Westerns. Even though it did take me a while as a cinephile to get used to squibs not going off when people are shot in spaghetti westerns. (laughs) I'm like, where are those Sam Peckinpah squibs? And it's a real novelty whenever it happens. Well, the thing is, it's not just violence itself, but it's the kind of mean spiritedness of the violence in the Westerns. These spaghetti Westerns, I mean, you can see it in the title of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which is an ironic title because those categories really blur together in that film and in most other spaghetti westerns. The good guys aren't so good. The bad guys you can kind of identify with. And talking about like how that reflected the times, I know reading Alex Cox's book, 10,000 Ways to Die, he talks about like, and you know, this sounds like kind of like armchair sociology, but I happen to think it's probably true. The Vietnam War was raging at the time. You know, you're looking at all of this unfiltered, uncensored violence on TV for the first time. You're looking at American troops committing horrible atrocities, as well as American troops just dying by the truckloads in awful ways. And this was just on TV. And uh, all over the United States, people like Bobby Kennedy or Martin Luther King or Malcolm X just getting shot one after another. It seemed like a very violent time. I know that Corbucci has talked about how that violence directly influenced his film The Great Silence. And certainly the violence that was in the air 
from the war and from everything else. Like if movies are the collective unconscious, it would have contributed to why these particular movies resonated so strongly at that time. And you have to remember as well as like, what is a Western? Like just the basic idea of one when you push spaghetti Westerns away. And it's kind of like the American ideal. It's about conquering a frontier. It's about clean cut good guys. That that's what those protagonists represented for all the serials, all the movies. They were just goodness in the kind of entertainment version of what a Western was. And the Spaghetti Western, you were having people like Clint Eastwood, who kind of seemed laissez-faire, that they didn't really have any loyalties. They were good guys at the end of the day, but they were more kind of anarchic spirits that have no allegiances when the film begins. That, you know, one of the kind of tropes of a Spaghetti Western is the lone gunman wandering into a town, getting involved with what's going on, and then leaving that town. That there is not like, oh, they represent this one thing. They are just a character in flux instead. Yeah, well, the plot of Yojimbo and also A Fistful of Dollars is that this lone gunman comes into town and he's faced with two rival gangs. And he spends the whole movie kind of pitting them against each other. Like, he's not affiliated. He doesn't have any particular... Loyalties. Loyalties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, another very key moment in a spaghetti western is one of the early scenes in Once Upon a Time in the West, where I I know that when Sergio Leone was pitching the movie to Henry Fonda to star in, he was very excited to tell him that, like, okay, you see a whole family get slaughtered, and then a man comes up. And it's Henry Fonda who's done it. Like, that would have been so powerful because Henry Fonda was, you know, he's 12 Angry Men. He's like the greatest guy in the world. He's young Mr. Lincoln, you know? And then Charles Bronson is the hero. That's the kind of atmosphere that made these movies so popular and so powerful. These spaghetti westerns wouldn't be as powerful as they are if they weren't in direct communication with a genre that dominated for decades. (laughs) And so you're doing something that's recognizable, but you're also doing it in a way that it shouldn't be done. And I think that's why it was so popular, especially in America, that it was such a big phenomenon and allowed these Italian companies to just pump them out and out and out and out. And something great about the Spaghetti Westerns is also, speaking of Henry Fonda, it reminds you of Hollywood faces seemingly in a place that they shouldn't be, even though they are kind of copying American stuff. Like Clint Eastwood ended up in A Fistful of Dollars because he couldn't get any jobs in Hollywood. Same thing with Lee Van Cleef as well. Yeah, and these strange Euro-pudding casts that would be assembled for some of these movies. I mentioned Klaus Kinski. He's in a ton of these films, and it's kind of it's kind of weird to see him, you know, this Polish-German actor riding a horse in Italy in what is supposed to be America. Well, Klaus Kinski was in a lot of those movies because they were international productions and the German financiers said, you got to get Kinski in this to be able to sell tickets in Germany. Where we watched a movie this week that has Ringo Starr in it. But I think the first film we should talk about is the earliest one, which is The Big Gun Down from 1966, directed by yet another Sergio, Sergio Salima, starring Lee Van Cleef and Thomas Mulan. Yeah, Lee Van Cleef, who everyone will know as the bad in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, plays a bounty hunter who's looking to get out of the business and one day he goes to a wedding party for the daughter of like a big local tycoon oh and he wants to get out of business by becoming a senator (laughs) yes and this big local tycoon says hey i want you to do one last job there is a mexican bandit who has raped and murdered a 13 year old girl 
And if you find him and kill him, I can help you get into politics. And this Mexican bandit is played by Thomas Millian. Who, speaking of Klaus Kinski, I feel like Thomas Millian was one Werner Herzog away from having the kind of cult that Kinski does. Yeah, I think you're right. Like, he's incredibly charismatic here. Mm, super charismatic. He starred in a lot of movies. America kind of realizes he exists a little too late in his career. Like he showed up in JFK, Traffic, Amistad, the Steven Spielberg movie. But like he pumped them out in these movies, oftentimes playing a Mexican, even though he was Cuban born. And, you know, he was popular enough that he actually starred in most of the films that he was in as well. Like um, The Big Gun Down led to a sequel starring his character, directed by Sergio Salima, called Run Man Run. And like Will said, Lee Van Cleef is on the tail of Thomas Millian, who is kind of a super criminal, I guess. Like, he's always outsmarting uh, Lee Van Cleef when it seems like Cleef is just about to grab him. Yeah, a bit of a game of cat and mouse, but uh, pretty soon Cleef realizes that he's actually been framed for this crime. He's not guilty. In fact, is the guilty party perhaps closely connected to that big tycoon who... Uh... The whole system is corrupt, Will! Yes, and I know that the Thomas Millian character is identified in the film as a revolutionary character, and this movie um, has politics that are very similar to a lot of other spaghetti westerns in that, like, a lot of these movies are about, you know, masters and serfs and capitalists and useful idiots and the way that money corrupts. You know, like, a lot of these filmmakers were like heavy-duty Marxists who were making these movies. Absolutely. I mean, Sergio uh, Salima would make another movie starring Thomas Millian called Face to Face, which the whole film is about that the young white guy who teams up with the villainous Thomas Millian ends up through experiences becoming the bad guy of the movie. <laughs> that like the protagonist you think you'll follow to the end ends up being the guy that you want to see gunned down in the final few minutes of the picture. It's interesting watching this movie and all the others how like, I mean, th this is a very good movie. It's like one of the best spaghetti westerns. It's interesting how all of them are to some degree like derivative of the Sergio Leone style. Like, Absolutely. Leone really established the template. They all have kind of the broad aesthetics that that film has, and they're trying to follow them pretty closely. I mean, in The Big Gun Down, you have the kind of lackadaisical pace, especially in the 110-minute director's cut version. You have these big, wide-open spaces. Everyone's very dirty. Like, if you showed a scene from some of these movies, you, you would go, oh, is that a Sergio Leone-directed film? It's like, no, no, it's just some people doing a very good imitation, also putting their own voice on it, but aesthetically, it's very close. What's the difference, would you say? Because I know a Sergio Leone movie when I see it. There's this, especially like the good, the bad, and the ugly and onwards. There's a certain poetic quality that they have, a certain like overpowering vibe. Yeah, I would say Sergio Leone got up his own ass very quickly in his film career. And I think even people that love him would say that as well, that every movie needed to be bigger than the last. Every moment had to kind of be operatic and massive, like the good, the bad, and the ugly. Once upon a time in the West, once upon a time in America. And that is reflected in how long scenes go. And like, they work oftentimes, but they go long because it needs to be the best thing ever. When you look at The Big Gun Down, it's following more of a classical kind of episodic Western structure of adventure, action, and interplay between the characters. Like, this existed in a 90-minute version as well, and while not as good, it could exist that way, while if you cut away the Sergio Leone pictures, you would lose what's so powerful about them. Yeah, you would just have, like, a not-all-that-compelling plot. Exactly. If you don't have that music, you don't have that camera work, that editing, just propelling it, you don't 
have it working as well as it does. And I mean, Sergio Salima's films, this is one of the least kind of like political in your face. I feel like he did a lot more later on in his career, but I thought it represented kind of like the other side of Spaghetti Western not from the two headliners, just done very well. Well, this afternoon, I finally sat down and watched a Golden Ninja video classic, And God Said to Kane from 1969, directed by Antonio Margaretti and starring Klaus Kinski as, uh, get ready for this name, folks, Gary Hamilton. Oh, I see Klaus Kinski's face the second you say that name. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, in this movie, it falls into the category of the gothic Western. Kinski, as Gary Hamilton, has been imprisoned in a chain gang for 10 years for a crime that he didn't commit. And uh, all of a sudden, he's abruptly freed. And he decides to seek vengeance against the wealthy man from town who consigned him to this life. And for most of the movie, it's a mystery as to exactly how this happened. And even when it's explained, it's still a little bit mysterious. I mean, Klaus Kinski in this film, he essentially just walks through the entire picture as a specter of death, killing all the people in his way over one long night as a storm kind of smashes into this town where all the people that he wants to murder are located. Yeah, so I like this movie very much. I mean, it's another one that it's so much more about vibe than plot. As you say, it all takes place or mostly takes place during night with like a lot of howling wind and uh, just torrential atmosphere. And it's got it's got very bad vibes. I think the Spaghetti Western is all about vibe. That, like, I think that's what people react to beyond the kind of tropes that get recycled over and over again. Like, when you watch a spaghetti western, at the end of the second act, the hero is going to be brutally mutilated. <laughs> like, it happens so often, I'm like, <laughs> every time that it comes up. So the genre eventually ran out of steam. Alex Cox identifies 1967 and 1968 as being the peak years. And Alex Cox, who, by the way, is the director of Repo Man and is is a real connoisseur of spaghetti westerns. And he made a spaghetti western himself called Straight to Hell, starring all his musician friends. In his opinion, that not a single good Italian western was made in the 70s. He is wrong in that. Alex Cox, very confusingly, when you consider his filmography, he hates any trace of comedy in his spaghetti westerns. One of what he identifies as one of the better 70s westerns, even though he still thinks it's not very good, is 1971's Blind Man, notable entirely for the fact that Ringo Starr is in it. Well, I think Blind Man is notable as well because it is part of a cycle of films that stars and produced, and he wrote most of the films, called a guy named Anthony Tony, a.k.a. Tony Tony. (laughs) And his (laughs) approach to the Spaghetti Western Clint Eastwood hero is really fun because it's a bumbling loser who barely scrapes by by the skin of his teeth. And his character was called The Stranger, and he made a bunch of movies that starred The Stranger character, including an amazing one called The Silent Stranger, where it's the first, I mean, to my knowledge, East meets West movie. And it's even more notable because it takes place in Japan. They shot in Japan. Everybody speaks Japanese, and it's not subtitled or anything like that. You're from the POV of this character who does not speak the language and is trying to get his gold or, you know, whatever those plots involve. Well, I actually didn't dislike Blind Man. Uh, It's a bit of a mess. It's more like, I want more Blind Man. Why are we following these other characters? I thought it was fun. I thought it became a bit of a slog in the midsection. But anyway, the story is Tony Tony plays this gunman who has been 
been and he's he's blind by the way he's like zatoichi and uh he's been tasked with transporting 50 mail order brides to uh meet a bunch of miners in uh utah i believe and we should point out he's like zatoichi but he's also shit at his job like he doesn't have any superhuman skills oftentimes he makes people point out where he has to shoot and he just fires his entire clip until he hits somebody well he keeps meeting with misfortunes his partner betrays him sold all of these 50 mail order brides to a mexican bandit and the mexican bandit has a brother played by ringo and uh ringo is not particularly good in this film i would say bit of a charisma vacuum no he's not good the only reason he's in this film is because a lot of Tony Tony's films were produced by Alan Klein, the Beatles manager. And this was one of them. And he put Ringo in it, I guess, because Ringo wanted to act. He's like, he's got that caveman energy that will soon pop out. I have a dream of like one day meeting Ringo Starr and saying to him, hey, I just saw a movie you were in called Blind Man. He'd probably be like, peace and love, peace and love. But imagine approaching Ringo Starr and that being the first thing you say and to And being him. like, I loved you in Blind Man and eat the rich. Oh, so good. <laughs> Why did you decide not to become an actor? <laughs> also, Ringo Starr in this movie is suffering through a Mexican accent. You know, he's trying to do this thing in this movie of like, giving like a cold steely zoolander stare but he's ringo star that's the thing he's he's silly he's fun but i think blind man is a good example of like where the movies were going post 70s and why alex cox disliked them as much as did because the genre has been trucking along into kind of separate yourself from the Sergio pictures, you try to get goofy. You try to find gimmicks. I mean, the film that uh, the director of Blind Man and its star made after this was coming at you, the 3D Western. What do you attribute the decline to? Because I understand that like in the 70s, there were a lot of comedy Westerns. Yeah, that's exactly what the decline of the Spaghetti Western was. Basically, Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer making a whole genre that everybody jumped onto following They Call Me Trinity, which is an okay film, but was a massive blockbuster hit and it kind of rewrote what the structure of a spaghetti western would be which is like lots of fist fights lots of goofy sound effects and everybody who had made straight westerns before then because this was a big hit followed down that path and that is a path that's just a dead end so once like you know the market was flooded by them and the industry you know the bottoms falling out then that was it nobody really wanted to see those movies anymore now we also watched a movie this week called cutthroats nine which until last week i had mistakenly assumed was the spaghetti western but it's actually a Spanish Western, certainly, though, part of the kind of spaghetti Western era. Yeah, it's following the wave of films, trying to, like, exploit them. And I should point out that the director of Cutthroats 9, he was actually there first making Spanish Westerns before Sergio Leone did his own. He made a Richard Harrison film in 1964 called Gunfight at Noon. He also made another one in 1963. And, uh, you know, he was making Zorro pictures. So he had been there first. And it was only later on that he's like, all right, oh, this is what people want. OK, I'll make this especially in the case of Cutthroats 9 I'm going to make it real gory as well yeah so this came out in 1972 and is best remembered as being the most violent European Western. That was the big thing. It's like, you know, forget about Django, forget about all that other stuff. Like, this is the movie that's going to put hair on your chest. And it's that violent because the American distributor was like, hey, can you go shoot some more gore scenes for this so we can sell it on the Grindhouse circuit? So it kind of plays almost like an ugly Western with flashes of Lucio Fulci gore. And I mean, Lucio Fulci also directed a bunch of spaghetti Westerns like um, Four of the Apocalypse. That's actually a real late period one as well. Every 
Italian exploitation auteur at one point or another directed a spaghetti western. You could not get away from it. Yeah, and Cutthroat 9, it does feel like a genre being choked to death because it's miserable. You don't like hanging out with any of these characters. Even in the Blu-ray version, it's like brown and muddy and ugly. They almost want to like drive you from the cinema as you experience this picture. Yeah, I'm assuming this was one of the chief influences on The Hateful Eight, right? Oh, it absolutely uh, like set in the snow, bunch of murderers. You don't know which way it's going to go. I'll say this, Cutthroat 9 is a surprising picture because any of your points of entry are uh, summarily dispatched faster than you think. It's also a film that every time I watch it, I go, oh yeah, it just ends incredibly abruptly. Yes, yes. Well, uh, the plot, by the way, involves this chain gang of hardened criminals and early in the film some narration tells us what all of their crimes are and those crimes are very bad indeed they're not like the dirty dozen style like ah we can get to know and love these characters as we see them go through these events oh no they're just going to show themselves to be worse than your first impression they're being transported by this general and his daughter bad idea to bring his daughter along let me tell you and uh, all of a sudden you know the stagecoach is robbed by bandits eventually they're left without the wagon and without the horses and they have to walk by feet to their destination a great deal of unpleasantness happens on the way oh yeah just misery after misery actually you know i enjoy this film for what it is i think it does its job very well i think it would actually probably be a little bit more of a difficult experience without the goofy gore of like pillows being stabbed with knives throughout and then guts being pulled out i agree like the gore is weirdly kind of like a tension release yeah it's like a valve being like oh now look at this thing that is fake and, you know, it's a visceral in its own way, but it's also letting you know of the artificiality of this while the rest is just kind of like a death march. Yeah, I do like the film, though, as for the same reasons you do. I think it has a very powerful atmosphere, very good vibe, like all these movies do. So the one thing that we didn't really get into, the closest that we got to was Blind Man, is I'm a big fan of like gimmick and trick westerns like uh, Sartana and Sabata. And there's a million versions of that. Like they call me Hallelujah, uh, Joe Dynamite and other stuff like that. <laughs> I know that we're both fans of The Fighting Fists of Shanghai Joe. I love The Fighting Fists of Shanghai Joe. Yeah, that one's so much fun. That's an East meets West movie with like a a wandering Chinese man who does Kung Fu in the West, constantly being underestimated by potential bandits. Uh, Klaus Kinski's in that one, too, for like 10 minutes. I mean, the great thing about uh, Fighting Fist of Shanghai Joe is that it's not only fun and a lot of stuff happens. It's also, I mean, it's almost Cutthroat's Nine level gory, like he's ripping yeah. eyes out, just like ripping throats. I think there's a bunch of squibs in that movie, too, because it's a late period spaghetti western. What are some other kind of deeper cut ones you'd recommend? Because I'm a huge fan of Django so, Kill. So like really weird, because for people that don't know, like Django Kill, the one that stars Thomas Mulian, uh, it's like an acid western. That's where you would qualify. Other ones in that kind of realm, I think you probably have to go more into like the Euro Westerns because everybody made Westerns like even Germany did. There's one called Deadlock that's really kind of wild and crazy like that. As far as that kind of like really weirdness, there's not that much stuff. Like when I was putting together the Blu-ray of In God's at the Cane, like I really wanted to find those like crazy, weird horror Westerns. And I was disappointed to discover there wasn't as many as I would think because, you know, a lot of filmmakers 
were coming from gothic horror films and they moved into spaghetti westerns, I was hoping for more kind of like influences that would creep into them. But And God Said to Cain is probably the biggest example of that. And there's a few here or there, but I don't think you can make it its own kind of subgenre. Or the ones that do tackle it don't tackle it as well as you would hope. And Django Kill is like the top of those kind of pictures. I think for me, like if I wanted to recommend stuff to people, like Enzo Gigi Castellari is one that made a lot of great spaghetti westerns. He was a guy that uh, people may know as the director of the original Inglorious Bastards. And he was like an Italian mainstay. He was a guy who always tackled every project that he did with like a lot of flair and energy. He did a, a Hamlet adaptation that was a spaghetti western called Johnny Hamlet. That's really fun. Oh, wow. I've never heard of that. And he also made like a great one with Chuck Connors, another washed up Hollywood star called Kill Them All and Come Back Alone. What a title. <laughs> And he probably made the most popular late period spaghetti western, which was Kioma starring Franco Nero. It's interesting that the spaghetti westerns, as we said earlier, kind of loom larger in the cultural imagination in many cases than the classic Hollywood westerns. And because they are responding to a certain loss of innocence, a certain growing consciousness that uh, those old Hollywood movies are just Hollywood movies, you know? I'm sounding very corny, but it's like, I remember my dad, when I was a really little kid, saying about The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, something like, oh, it's it's really good if you've seen a lot of the other, like, the Hollywood Westerns, so you kind of know what it's referencing, or you know what it's building on. I mean, it's funny that so many people get into that movie without knowing the Hollywood Westerns, and it's kind of like, I don't mean to dismiss the Hollywood Westerns, because so many of them are so wonderful, but it's like... Of course, the spaghetti westerns are the ones that feel contemporary now. I think that people, when they kind of like see the spaghetti westerns, and by that I mean the Sergio Leone pictures, they feel they know what a Hollywood western is. Like, you feel you've taken it in by osmosis. And that, like, you don't need to watch those films. They're lame, right? Like, <laughs> that's old stuff. And while that's, as Will said, not the case, I love Hollywood Westerns and some of the directors that never get talked about. The Spaghetti Westerns speak more to that kind of cynicism, the ugliness, the dirtiness, and the poeticness within all of that. And that's what we have a reaction to. Yeah, at some point when the innocence is lost, quote unquote, there's like... There's no putting the genie back in the bottle. I'm, I'm fucking up my metaphors right now. <laughs> so, of course, the spaghetti westerns, which are a response to something else, end up becoming the default. On the note of films that people should check out if they want to kind of explore this genre more, there's a duology that came out directed by Ducio Tesari called uh, A Pistol for Ringo and The Return of Ringo. And what's great about those movies is that, like, the first one is kind of like getting his feet wet of like what we can do in the genre and the second one is pushing it to, as far as it can with essentially the same star uh, Giuliano Gemma which we didn't talk about on this uh, podcast because what's interesting about him is that he's probably one of the most prolific spaghetti western actors that never had that much penetration in North America and he has a very classic Hollywood face which is why I think that you know he liked to make spaghetti westerns as much as he did is because he can dirty it up and they can push it to the extreme to places that you wouldn't expect him to be. At the same time, he could also do more conventional stuff where he's just a smiling hero that you would expect in like a Saturday matinee. So Spaghetti Westerns, a whole world to discover. There's a million different titles out there. Oftentimes they have 
three to ten different uh, names. You'll see a lot of Django's because, oh boy, they slap Django on everything. Even Joe D'Amato co-directed like a Sartana versus Django movie that's mostly made up of stock footage. Never made a bad film. Oh, of course. Like everything Joe D'Amato has touched. Justin, do we have any letters? We do have letters. And as per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Wendy Liu. And she goes, hey, Will and Justin, I recently discovered this podcast through Michael and us and I'm really enjoying it so far. I'm constantly in awe of how much you both seem to know about film. That's the secret. It's just we seem to know about it when in reality we know nothing. All smoke and mirrors. Two questions. What books of film criticism would you recommend to someone who loves literary criticism but knows nothing about film? That's me. So I think we've got to go back to the old standbys, right, Will? The American Cinema by Andrew Sarris. You know what I would recommend? By the way, Wendy Liu was on a recent episode of the Michael and Us podcast. Highly recommend that people check that out. She was a great guest. I would recommend Roger Ebert's The Great Movies, the multi-volume book series, which you can also find all the essays on rogerebert.com. The Great Movies books are very good at like giving people a roadmap to the canon. It's like, let's say you, you're wondering what's the big deal about the passion of Joan of Arc. Well, here's Roger Ebert to tell you, here's why the passion of Joan of Arc is important. What, why is Citizen Kane important? Well, Roger Ebert will tell you. From there, like you can decide uh, whether you agree with that or not or whatever, but like he's there to tell you what it's all about. And I would recommend checking out the critic who definitely put me on a path of discovering stuff I had never heard about, Jonathan Rosenbaum. <laughs> We've talked about him before on this podcast. His essays can seem daunting sometimes, but I feel that his style is very readable and approachable. That, like, even if you don't know the movies that he's talking about, he will take the time to explain them to you and make you interested in them. That after you read his work, you'll want to be like, oh, I need to check this stuff out. So, like, his book, Essential Cinema, is a great way to go about it. And, you know, Will recommending Ebert's great movies makes a great chaser to that because you can see two perspectives of like, what is the canonical choices and what is this guy, Jonathan Rosenbaum, what are his hobby horses that he thinks are important and that people should watch? So yeah, both of those together, I think, make a really good start, especially if you don't know movies and which ones you can go and discover. Oh, uh, one more I'll say. Um, Hollywood from Vietnam to Reagan by Robin Wood. That reminds me. We were going to do a Robin Wood episode a while back. We got to put that back on the calendar. We should do it, yeah. When you're dealing with like a critic tackling things in a political way that's also very readable and approachable, I think Robin Wood is at the top of that kind of stuff. Definitely. So you can also check out, if you search the Important Cinema Club books, we did a whole episode on books early on in the run where we recommended a bunch of stuff. And on the Film Trap website, you can also see the list that we talked about. So I'll link that, the episode and the list in the description of this episode. So thank you very much for that letter, Wendy. And our next letter is, James Cameron is Canadian. Dear Important Cinema Club, if I'm not mistaken, you've not devoted an entire episode to Canadian auteur James Cameron. Why not? Aside from discussions of T2 and Alita Battle Angel, I'm pretty sure you've managed to sidestep the box office behemoth entirely. What gives? By sheer dint of Canadianness alone, let alone the upcoming Avatar sequels, Cameron should be on the schedule. Love the show. Guys, thanks so much. Best, Peter. I just want to say that, say this to us as if we don't know James Cameron is Canadian. If you're a Canadian, you know every Canadian celebrity. Uh, nobody accepted my pitch, though, of a Canadian Heritage Minute where James Cameron is hallucinating uh, <laughs> during the shooting of Piranha 2, a metal <laughs> hand coming up out of the ground, which is how he said he got the idea for the Terminator. I mean, Harlan Ellison would have something to say about that, but yeah, it would make a great Canadian Heritage Minute. Well, James Cameron, I think the only reason we haven't done him is because 
I don't know. Sometimes there can be those like gigantic names, names like Stanley Kubrick, um, for example, who come up and we're like, they're just so big. I mean, I'm sure James Cameron would be a very good episode topic. Maybe when the Avatar sequel allegedly comes out. My calendar is up. I'm scratching off those days. I think maybe at that time we should we should do James Cameron. His movies are so long, too, though. I remember it was Christmas time and being at like relatives big party and someone saying Avatar is the next Star Wars. And I was like, what the heck are they talking? about i've seen the movie but you know what james cameron proved me wrong gigantic hit uh james cameron i would say very good filmmaker oh great filmmaker. t2 titanic t1 uh parts of true lies <laughs> what do you mean that film holds up there's nothing politically incorrect with it at all i like the chase with the horse through the hotel yeah, lobby. and you love tom arnold's shenanigans <laughs> i mean it is the best tom arnold performance have you heard that story of chris elliott said that james cameron <laughs> was gonna cast him and make a comedy movie with him after chris elliott had appeared in the abyss Oh, wow. And what happens was um, when James Cameron came to Dave Letterman to advertise the abyss, Chris Elliott did a sketch where he was like sitting in a pool and like, I think he was pretending to be James Cameron. And Cameron was so infuriated that like he never spoke to him again. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, I'm sure it was worth I it. I wish I lived in the 90s when Chris Elliott was so powerful. He was acting in everything. Francis Ford Coppola movies, James Cameron movies. Wait, wasn't he in another crazy film? Oh, well, he wasn't a Michael Mann film, but he was very young when he showed up in that. Tim Burton produced Cabin Boy, so like... Tim Burton was supposed to direct Cabin Boy! In a five-year period, Chris Elliott was working with Burton, Cameron, Coppola, Resnick. Wow, Resnick. What a star. So, uh, wait, on that note, people should check out Chris Elliott's comedy uh, that he did with David Letterman. It is so funny, even today. <laughs> the fact that, like, there was a whole run where he was hosting his own Tonight show during Dave Letterman's show. I mean, he would come out as Marlon Brando all those times. Uh, or the time he came out as Jay Leno and did a Jay Leno impersonation. And then when Jay Leno was on the show, he showed up all beat up. Oh, so good. So good. I mean, it's not hard to see why people loved him as much as they did. M many still do. Oh, of course. Many still do. So, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. What are we doing on our Patreon this week, Will? Well, speaking of spaghetti westerns, we examined a notable film by Mr. Spaghetti Western himself, Clint Eastwood. Oh, yeah. We had to, you know, continue the train of this subject matter by doing what, Phil? The Bridges of Madison County. Can't wait to see him blow up those bridges. <laughs> so, yeah, we're talking about one of the most famous romantic films of all time. And it's, you know, another chance to return to uh, one of the podcast mascots, Clint Eastwood, the hardest working auteur in show business. What are we doing next week, Will? Well, we're doing a topic that you pitched. We want to have fun next week, you know? We've periodically delved into the world of comedy, and no comedian loomed larger. Actually, that's not true. Several comedians loomed larger. But uh, no comedian occupied the special place that Mr. Rodney Dangerfield occupied in the 1980s. A man so popular, he had his own dog-based feature film where he played Rover Dangerfield. You know, traditionally, people have given this man no respect, but perhaps we will give him the respect he deserves as we talk about what caddyshack probably back to school never seen back it. to school i've seen back to school a long time ago uh what if we watch my five wives yeah or ladybugs <laughs> the ones that you... it's one of his collaborations with sydney j fury dangerfield is a guy that like didn't do that much like uh, dramatic acting work which i feel 
was a um, you know a loss to history because like he was in Natural Born Killers, but that's pretty much it, isn't it? What makes you interested in doing Rodney Dangerfield as a topic? I love the topic, but but what is? I it? think that I'm fascinated about him as a comedic presence. That he does loom large, like he is someone that is recognizable, and that like I don't have you know that much affinity beyond his appearance in the simpsons though like there's i haven't seen back to school i'm not somebody who watched caddyshack very often but his mannerisms and his presence is so kind of specific and i think specific of a particular time as well that i think it would be fun to discuss i'll tell you that when i saw caddyshack for the first time when i was 11 years old i laughed so hard at rodney dangerfield I, i there are a few things that have made me laugh harder than him in that movie and uh will i still feel the same way i guess we'll find out i'm excited so that's what we're doing next week and until then my name is justin the clue i'm will sloan thanks for listening hello justin here interrupting briefly to remind you that if you haven't written a review of the important cinema club on apple podcast we would very much appreciate it it really helps get new listeners and makes me and will just feel better when we see a new positive review on there and if you need something to kick off the summer make sure to mark your calendar because on june 5th I will be hosting the Summer Movie Mind Melter, which is 24 hours of movies. Yep, that's right. Straight 24 hours. Action movies, comedy movies, horror movies, blockbusters. Hopefully some stuff that you have never seen. It's a blast. It will be happening at Twitch TV slash Important Cinema Club. And you can follow me at DeCluj, D-E-C-L-O-U-X, the letter J, on Twitter for more information and a few hints of what we'll be playing. And finally, I would like to thank some of our new patrons. Patrons who include Mahid Shana, Coriander, Zach L, Nial MacGiola Chomgale, Evan, Mark Snornidge, Dylan Harrington, James Renforth Frederick, Wendy Liu, Kevin Barr, Philip Dryzen, Ben, and Liam Patrick Monroe. Thank you all for becoming patron subscribers. We really appreciate it, and we wouldn't keep doing the show without your support. And with that, we now return you to your regular scheduled programming. Well, Justin, I was really sad yesterday because the great Charles Grodin passed away. I'm sure you're a Grodin fan, right? Can you not be? If you've seen him in a bunch of movies, are there people that don't like Charles Grodin? Oh, man. I mean, maybe people who thought he was too mean to that dog, Beethoven. Or that he was too mean to, like, you know, all those late night hosts that he would go and torture on his shows. I'll tell you about the time that I saw Charles Grodin in person. In 2011, I went to the now defunct 92Y Tribeca in New York to see a screening of Midnight Run. And he did a Q&A afterwards. I believe uh, Nick Pickerton, actually, him and Nicholas Rapold moderated the Q&A. And the two of them, I don't think spoke once. Grodin started the Q&A just with a torrent of like, he talked for 30 minutes about, maybe even an hour, he talked about all the work that he was doing advocating for wrongfully convicted prisoners. He said that he was hosting a local radio show in New York at the time. He always takes these cases on as a real cause. He's always uh, putting pressure and using his platform to get these people paroled. And he talked about that for like seriously an hour just uninterrupted. And then he took questions from the audience. And it was incredibly riveting. I mean, just watching Grodin talk 
is always a delight. And unfortunately, as an actor, he seemed to get trapped in projects like the aforementioned Beethoven taking care of business, J.J. Abrams' first script, which is a Jim Belucci Philofax-related movie. I mean, I, I haven't seen that one. He is in a lot of kind of mediocre comedies, but, you know, he's in a couple of classics, too. Yeah, but every time he shows up in those mediocre comedies, he's always the best part. In So I Married an Axe Murderer. I, like, he's like Buster Keaton in the way that he can do so much with so little. Just the, the merest glance of an eye can cause you to laugh so hard and in so i married an axe murderer he does probably the least he's ever done in a movie and he's so funny i mean he's been in classics too like clifford (laughs) real life the heartbreak kid like come on those are comedy classics the scene in the heartbreak kid where where he breaks up with Jeannie berlin is as funny as it gets yeah i watched clifford again last night with my girlfriend and uh, just laughed all the way through had a great time with it uh, when he drinks that hot sauce during his speech <laughs> <laughs> i was i was thinking too like that scene at the end where like he's he's kidnapped clifford and he's got him on the ride and uh and i mean the two of them together martin short and charles groden two very different performance styles meshing together so well like martin short is so big and charles groden is so subtle it's like coltrane and miles davis together and when when he's on the ride martin short goes oh this is so much fun uncle martin by the way how much time are you probably going to get for uh kidnapping me and groden just has this big grin he goes hmm, life maybe shall we go again <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, and of course, Midnight Run. Oh, He's so, so good. good in that movie, bouncing off of Robert De Niro the entire time. Man, he was in two Beethoven movies. Poor Charles Grodin. And then he just disappeared forever. Well, you know what? He shows up in While We're Young. He's very funny in that movie, the Noah Baumbach film. Yeah, like he didn't make any movies for 20 years. And then he kind of came back into making movies again. And he basically, so basically he lived in Connecticut and he was like, I'll do a movie if I'm able to drive home at night. Meant he couldn't do anything on the West Coast. So you'll see him in, like he was on... Uh, Louie, for example. Very funny on Louie as the doctor. <laughs> it's a shame that show disappeared. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, problematic auteurs, uh, he was in the last James Toback. He was an imperfect murderer. Groden is incredible. Though. I mean, he got stuck in some real stinkers. He was in the Al Pacino, Barry Levinson film, The Humbling. And he was also in the Taylor Hackford, Robert De Niro film, The Comedian. <laughs> as bad as those movies may be, I don't know, I haven't seen them, but as bad as they may be... You know he's the best part in it. Exactly. So maybe I'll check him out. <laughs> or... Uh, uh, who could forget the uh, Zach Braff, Jason Bateman comedy, The X? Yeah, that was like his first movie in 15 years. It's insane. And of course, he's great in Ishtar. Oh, he's amazing in Ishtar. I've seen Ishtar with an audience. And if you can see Charles Grodin with an audience, he's so much funnier. Oh, that screening we went to of Clifford? Mm. Classic. <laughs>